Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Father, would you hear um, our prayers right now? Would you draw near to us? Uh, Would you be using this time together as we pray, as I teach, as we all listen and hopefully learn? Lord, conform us more to the image of Christ. Make us into the men and to the women that you want us to be uh, that would please you, Lord, with our thoughts, with our words, with our actions, uh, Lord, but even with the feelings and affections of our heart. We want to be more in line with you. Uh, And in some sense, that seems impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So, Holy Spirit, would you use these means of grace, teaching, thinking, praying, listening, learning, uh, by your word, which you say is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, which can cut, can pierce to the division of soul and spirit, uh, joints and marrow, It judges the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. So Lord, we pray that the secrets of our heart would be exposed to us in a a deeper, fuller, fresher way today. And where we need to be convicted, we would be convicted. Where we need to be encouraged and uplifted, we'd be encouraged. Lord, make us into the ministers you want us to be. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 19. And I'm not going to read every verse there. Um, but this is just setting the context again. And part of what we're looking at today is the idea of David praying against his enemies. So if you wanted to give this one a title, it would be David praying against his enemies. Uh, so let's just, again, set the context. First Samuel chapter 19 and skip down to verse 11. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. And then skip down to verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel. Okay, now Samuel was the prophet. Uh, Remember, in the Old Testament, the prophet was like the mouthpiece of God. Uh, When the prophet spoke, that was God speaking. So David is in this very hard situation. At this point, he is serving in Saul's court. This is after he has killed uh, Goliath, and he's been serving in the military. He's been uh, rising in the ranks of uh, Saul's troops, so to speak. Um, But Saul has become paranoid. Saul has been tormented by a demon. He's beginning to go insane, and he is fearful of David. Uh, He probably has some idea that David is going to be the next king. And so he has decided he's going to kill him. He sends the henchmen. His wife helps him. He escapes. So now everybody flip over to Psalm uh, chapter 59. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Psalm chapter 59, which if you read the heading there, and I think Aaron asked at the end of class last week, you know, how are we to treat those headings? And most commentators that I've ever studied say, uh, the, the headings are trustworthy. They're reliable uh, to treat them as inspired by the Lord. Um, even some of them may have been added later, but if they were probably added by people that knew when it was written, and that's why a lot of the Psalms don't have headings, and a lot of what we're trying to do in this class is look at the Psalms that do have headings so that we can set them in the context. So um, 
we're going to look at Psalm chapter 59, which is really David praying against his enemies. Now, uh, let me say two things by way of introduction before we dive in here. The reality is there are a lot of psalms like this. This is not the only psalm where you find David praying against his enemies. And I had a buddy who was in seminary, and um, he was having a hard time with the languages, specifically Greek. And so every time he would have to read a book, and if you ever take a lot of seminary classes, a lot of the books, you don't have, it's not just like the books in Greek class. It's like a lot of the books and Bible commentaries you'll read will start using Greek words and talking about Greek phrases and prepositions and stuff like that. And he was just having a hard time. So he said, as I'm reading any book for any seminary class, if I get to a page and there was a Greek word on it, I just skip the whole page. Well, obviously, this guy did not do very good in seminary. I think he ended up, you know, he's going for an MDiv, and he said, I'm not doing that anymore. He lowered his degree, and I'm not sure he ever finished and uh, didn't end up using that degree at all. Uh, here's my point. I think a lot of people, when they read and study the Psalms, they have the same idea about what we call the imprecatory Psalms, which is just this big word that means when David, in a sense, is praying for God's wrath to come down on his enemies because we don't know what to do with it. We don't like it. And a lot of us honestly and genuinely think that that can't be right for New Testament believers to pray that way. So we just skip it. We don't pray it. And the reality is you start skipping a lot of Psalms when you do that. And so you're missing a lot of God's Word. That's not a good thing. Okay. Um, so um, I want us to try to go deep this morning in this one psalm to try to understand some of the principles about how and why David prayed this way and the right ways that we should even pray this way, even on this side of the cross. Okay, so the first point here in Psalm 59 would be, deliver me. In a sense, David is crying out to God saying, deliver me. And the sense that he gets and that we should get is that God is listening. God is listening to him. Okay, so just the first four verses. Psalm 59, starting verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression of or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. Okay, just from those first four verses, let's have a brief little discussion here. Is there anything that we don't like about those verses? Is there anything from those first four verses that might make us say, I'm uncomfortable praying those words, putting those words in my own life, in my own prayer life? I think when he says, awake. Okay, when he says awake, that word. Yeah, that, that sounds offensive, right? I mean, that, that sounds like he's saying to God, you're asleep, you're not doing a good job, okay? So, so we think, well, that sounds almost blasphemous to pray that way, okay? Now just pause for a second. Yeah, he says something similar in Psalm 3. He says something similar in Psalm 3? That's yeah. right. Or arise, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. Get out of bed. Where are you? Why aren't you on the throne? I mean, that's the implication. Why aren't you doing your job? Now, we can all understand, well, that's a seemingly bad way to pray, and yet it's in the Scripture. <laughs> so how is it a good way to pray? Why would it be a good way to pray? Part of what I love about the Bible, guys, is it, is, it, it deals with our emotions where they are really at. And that's part of what I'm wanting you guys to get out of this class on the spiritual disciplines is so much of modern American Christianity for sure 
is about putting your best foot forward, showing up and acting like you have it all together, making sure that you pass the theology exam and get an A plus and can smile, right? And, and, and what I would like much more is to be raw and to be real and then God to meet you in that rawness and that realness. And, and, and you get that in the Psalms, you get that in David. He is not trying to play games. He is not trying to put his best foot forward. He's putting his honest foot forward. He's putting his worst foot forward. You could say that. So what is David doing? He's saying, God, I trust you. That's why I'm here praying. But i got to be honest. I feel like you're asleep. You've made me all these promises, but what I feel like is you're not doing a very good job of keeping them. And guys, if you feel that in your heart, you should talk about it. I was teaching a Sunday school class at Briarwood yesterday, and I was talking about Job, and we talked about chapter 1 where basically God allows Satan to wipe out virtually all of Job's businesses and then kill all of his children. And I said, now listen, I want y'all to all just try to put yourself in Job's shoes for a while, for a second, and be honest, don't give me the Sunday school answer. In that moment, how would you feel towards God? What would you feel like God was doing to you? And one of the men in the class, and I think he's an elder in our church, he, he yelled out, I feel like God was punishing me. And I thought that was a very good, accurate, honest answer, right? If all that stuff happened literally on one day, you'd feel like, man, God is out to get me. And somebody else kind of raised their hand and said, well, but you've got to understand, Job didn't understand grace as much as we do and on this, this, this side of the cross. And, and I want to give this man the benefit of the doubt. I can't read his heart. But it kind of sounded like the implication was, oh, we should know better. We should never feel like God's punishing us. Well, in one sense, that's true. But another sense is our hearts don't always follow our thoughts exactly, do they? And part of the way you get to a place of maturity where you can have a deeper trust in God is when you have these conflicting feelings and emotions in your heart, you don't try to stuff them and just pretend like everything's okay. You go to God and you vent them. I think I've said this in this class before. I can't remember, okay, but I've, I've said it somewhere before, is that, listen, you probably ought to have at least one human friend that you can vent to about anything. But the problem is you got to make sure you have a safe, mature human friend because you might drag them into your sin or they might give you some really bad advice. There's one person in the universe, though, that it's always safe to vent to, and it's God because he's big enough and he's mature enough to handle it. You're not going to drag him into sin. And guess what? If you're feeling it or thinking it, he already knows you're feeling it and thinking it anyway. So you ought to try and quit faking righteousness in front of him and just be brutally honest with him. That's what David's doing. He's saying, deliver me, pick me up, get me to a high place, get me to a strong tower, somewhere where I'll be safe, I'll feel safe. These men are sinners. They're cold-blooded murderers. They're literally laying outside my house waiting to murder me. Okay? Now, awake, God. That's the first thing that might seem like, uh, that doesn't seem like a right way to pray, but what we're saying is that is one of the ways that you build a stronger, more confident faith. But is there anything else in these verses that might stand out to you as, that seems kind of uncomfortable. I don't know that I'd want to say that to God. I think the, uh, you know, he says powerful men attack me, but not because of any sin or rebellion of mine. Okay. And I, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that. Yeah, I mean, it's like he's saying, hey, I'm innocent, right? And this is what we really think. Well, David just not as godly and mature as us, he hadn't read Romans 3 yet, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Now again, our theology might be a little bit more pristine than David's because we do live, right? And we've had the whole New Testament written and we've had great people like John Calvin come along. But <laughs> let's don't throw stones at David too quick because God did choose him to write part of the Bible and he didn't choose any of us to do that. What does David mean when he says something like this? It would be like this, okay? Imagine that you walked outside to get in your car after this is over and the police were standing in your driveway with your neighbor and your neighbor was irate and your neighbor's pointing at you and saying, that guy broke into my house last night and stole some of my stuff. What would you say in a visceral moment? You say, no, I didn't. I'm innocent of these charges. I've never broken into that guy's house. I never thought about breaking that guy's house. I don't even want any of his stuff. You would not in that moment be saying, I am sinlessly perfect. I could be the Savior of the universe just like Jesus because I've never had one sinful thought my whole life. You're not saying that. You're saying in this specific incident, with this specific person and the specific thing they are charging me of, I am innocent. And that's what David is saying. Is he saying, God, these people are accusing me of wanting to do some wrong to Saul, wanting to usurp his throne, something like that. And in that charge, I'm innocent. I'm blameless. Okay? And so there's a right way that we can pray that. Now, you might get into a conflict with your wife, for those of us that are married, our husband, and you may feel like, I'm going to tell this from my male perspective, that you know she has done all the sinning in this one fight that I've been perfectly righteous. Be really careful because it almost never goes down that way. Okay? Uh, but there are some times where you might be accused of something and you're like, man, I didn't have anything to do with that. I don't know what this person's talking about. And again, there's a right way to pray that way to the Lord. So he starts out, deliver me, O God. Second point, this is where it gets harder. <laughs> Destroy them. Secondly, we're about to look at a section of this psalm where the bottom line is he's saying, destroy them. And in some sense, what God's response is that he talks about is like God is just laughing at his enemies, mocking them. So let's start in verse 5. You, Lord of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us. So he is saying, God, when it says Lord of hosts, that usually means God is the God of angelic armies. And he's saying, God, I want you to punish all the wicked pagan sinners. And listen, a lot of the pagan nations that surrounded Israel back then had terribly evil practices like child sacrifice. I mean, they, they would be like the Nazis or ISIS to us. And so David is praying, wipe these people out. But part of what he's saying is some of these so-called Jews are living like those godless pagans because they want to kill me, an innocent man. Again, not innocent before God in the throne room of the universe, but innocent at the human level. He's talking about somebody that's persevering in hard-hearted sins such as murder. Okay. Now let me just pause and say this. Most of us probably don't have any assassins laying outside of our bedroom at night trying to kill us. This is not where we're living. And so one of the ways that will help us apply this psalm the most in our life is, I want you to think, and don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to share with the class so you can be ruthlessly honest with yourself. If you had to give an answer to this question, who is your enemy? Who would you think of? Listen, that might be a coworker that you feel like has slandered you. 
That might be a family member that has been abusive to you in times. That might be somebody more distant, you know, a political party that you think is doing something bad to ruin people's lives. It might be enough. You might be mad at Russia for invading Ukraine. I don't know, okay? But whoever you feel like they're an enemy, there can be a legitimate way to pray these prayers and think about that as we keep going, okay? Now, dogs in ancient times, he calls them dogs. Dogs back then were not primarily sweet little cute puppies that you petted in your lap, okay? They were more like wild scavengers that devoured food, whatever they could find. And David is saying that's what these men are like. Okay? They not only do terrible things, they say terrible things. Now, now remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, that if I just call somebody a fool out of sinful anger, it's like heart murder. It's like baby murder. Right? The, the whole phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. Evil words go deep. And listen, if we're not careful, when people are hating us, when people are saying hateful things about us, it can be easy to retaliate even if we don't go out and start saying evil things about them. If we just kind of meditate on it and stew on it all by ourselves, hate can start to rise in our heart. And so the best thing to do when you start to feel some of those feelings is pray them to God. Don't try to keep them in your own heart and just process it on your own. Be honest with God. This is how much they're hurting me, God. This is how I feel about it. This is what I wish you would do. Let's keep going. Look at verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. And part of what he's saying is, you're not scared. You're not afraid. You're not trembling. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look and triumph on my enemies. He has real confidence. Kill them not. Now this, this is, just notice what he's praying here. Kill them not lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. He's essentially saying, don't do this fast, Lord. (laughs) Make a show of them. For the sin of their mouth, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back howling like dolls and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. Okay, now, um, again, in verse 9, when he makes the statement, O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress, he's saying, I'm not necessarily running away to hide in a cave as much as I'm running to you in prayer. And even running to Samuel, I'm running to your word. And that's what we need to do. When we feel overwhelmed, when we feel attacked, when we feel maligned, when we feel slandered, we should primarily run to God in prayer and do His Word to listen. Okay. Now, part of what David's doing here is there probably was some temptation to be fearful, to be weak, to be terrified. But with, with the, uh, the eye of his mind, the eyes of his heart, he's staring at God by faith. And he's seeing how confident God is, and that's making him feel more confident. Does that make sense? Let me, let me tell you a little story that may bring that home. Uh, when my, all of my children, the school they've gone to, when they were in the sixth grade, they did a little Washington, D.C. trip. I don't know if any of y'all grew up and did something like that. And, you know, part of what the teachers do is they make them do this massive project on the trip because it's basically like a nice little vacation, but they want to make it count for something, right? So it's like you got to go to this museum and you got to get this brochure and you got to take this picture and you got to blah, 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 do all this. 
So I had gone with one of my sons, sixth grade. We'd been doing the whole thing. He was, and he was, he's like, Dad, I want to take all my own pictures. I want to take responsibility. He was great, being very mature about it, keeping up with all the brochures. I was doing nothing. And the last day we're there, we go to the last museum. He's getting everything. We get on the bus. We're driving back to the hotel. It's, you know, probably dinner time at this point. And he realizes, oh, no, I took my backpack off with my little notebook, with all my brochures and pictures, and I left it at the museum. And he starts to panic. And his little mind is rolling. What are we going to do? The bus is rolling. You've got like six buses, and he's talking to me, and he's crying. And can't we go back and get it? And I realize the museum's closed. As we were walking out, it's closed. And there's no way we're turning around six buses for one kid's backpack. But I'm also realizing, number one, worst case scenario, if he flunks this project, it doesn't really matter, right? Who cares if he flunked one project in the sixth grade? Nobody will ever know in the grand scheme of things. And then number two, worst case scenario, I'll wake up in the morning, I'll Uber back to the museum, I'll get the book bag, I'll meet the buses, everything will be fine. But he can't see all that at that moment. In his little sixth grade mind, it's like his world is coming down. And he's just panicking, he's crying. And in some sense, I'm just saying, hey, buddy, calm down. In some sense, I was so calm, at first, it, it, it offended him. It made him think I didn't care. I wasn't active. I wasn't going to try to help him. Now, just pause and think about how, how that relates to our relationship with God at times. God is so calm about the troubles in our life. Sometimes that's why we're saying, why don't you wake up and do something, God? And God's saying, I got this. Why don't you chill? <laughs> okay? And part of what we have to do is, with the eyes of our heart, we stare at God's confidence until His confidence starts to become our confidence. And that's what David's doing in this prayer. And that's what my little six-year-old, I mean, sixth-grade son did. I literally, we're on the bus, okay? He's trying not to panic too much, cry too much, so his friends won't know what's going on. And so I literally had to get down on my knees, right in front of him and say, buddy, look me in the eyes. I promise I'm going to handle this. Nothing I can do tonight. Not going to get fixed tonight. I will fix it tomorrow. There's nothing to worry about. And then once he saw how serious I was and I was involved and I had a plan, he started wiping the tears out of his eyes. He got happy. He went back to the back of the bus, started laughing, having a good time with his buddies again. But he had to realize, no, no, dad's here. Dad's in control. Dad has a plan that I may not fully understand or get, but I can trust dad. That's so much, guys, of what a good prayer life is. It's not just going through the motions. It's not just checking a box saying, I spent 30 minutes today, and I interceded for 80 different people by name, so I get a star on my little notebook. It, it's, it's meeting with God in an emotional way and taking oftentimes my negative sinful emotions of fear and worry and pride and anger and whatever it is and kind of dumping them, emotionally vomiting on God, and then saying, help me, Father. Make me joyful because you're joyful. Make me happy because you're happy. Make me confident because you're happy. Make me peaceful because you're peaceful. And I want to be like you. Doesn't happen in an instant. But if we persevere in prayer. I mean, one of my favorite promises in the whole Bible. Do not worry about anything. But in all things by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's one of my favorite promises. Because when you're overwhelmed with worry, if you'll persevere in prayer, there's a promise that eventually peace will come down almost like a fortress around your heart. It won't make sense, but you'll be freed up. Okay, That's how David's praying. Okay, Verse 11 can be a harsh verse, but, but think about what God did with Pharaoh 
I mean, God basically drew it out with Pharaoh and all the different ten so-called gods of Egypt and exposed them through different plagues to get more glory for himself and to give more confidence to the Israelites. And in a sense, that's what David is praying that God will do in defeating his enemies. Okay? Verse 12, give them what they deserve. Nothing more, nothing less. He's praying for justice. Verse 13, eradicate these wicked men from Israel. Why? Why? So that everybody will know that you're real. You're a real God. You do care about justice. You're not asleep on the throne. This is ultimately not just about David's comfort. It's about the glory of the one true God. Okay, and then verse 15. Okay, this verse implies, you know, they're going hungry. They're not getting what they wanted. They're whining, okay? They're like Saul's men that were constantly trying to catch David, as you see all through 1 Samuel, and they never could. Okay? Now, let's go a little bit deeper on this again because this is where it can get really hard. Man, he's praying for God to kill people, basically. He is praying for people even to die and go to hell. I mean, this seems terrible. He's saying, pour out your wrath on them. Now, why do we have a hard time praying like this? Okay, several reasons. First reason is this. It doesn't seem to jive with Jesus and the New Testament and his commands about loving your enemies. But remember, one of the greatest things uh, to understand how the New Testament and the Old Testament relate, and I, I think maybe Augustine first said this in some form and then B.B. Warfield kind of made it a little bit more famous later, is the Old Testament is just a New Testament concealed and the New Testament is just the Old Testament revealed. You understand what I mean by that? Let me give an example. Imagine the room that you're sitting in right now, whether you're at a restaurant or you're in your bedroom at home. All the furniture in your room represents a piece of doctrine, right? So the room I'm in. This chair represents the sinfulness of man. This chair over here represents the goodness of God. This TV over here represents, you know, uh, man's uh, made in the image of God, whatever. And, and your room is filled with all these doctrinal pieces of furniture, in the Old Testament, all the doctrines in the exact same place. It's just that the lights are out. You can't fully see it. You kind of have to grope around in the dark to figure out what everything means and how it works. In the New Testament, what happened? All the lights came on. All the doctrines in the exact same place. It's just the doctrine is a lot clearer to us now. Now, let's think about how that applies here, okay? Second reason we have a hard time praying like this. Grace is in the Old Testament. And judgment is in the New Testament. It's just that the emphasis is different. In the Old Testament, it seems like judgment is kind of up front, rubbed in your face. Okay? In the New Testament, it's like grace is brought to the forefront. But think about this. Do y'all remember the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, verse 3? It's about prayer. It's about persevering in prayer. But remember how he's, and there's this little widow that keeps going to a judge? And that's supposed to represent a woman praying to God. And do you remember what her prayer was that finally gets answered? It was, give me justice against my enemies. That's a New Testament prayer that Jesus taught. Okay? There's a place in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul is seen turning people over to Satan. You think, that's a pretty unique way to pray. Okay? Now listen, if you still like, I don't care what you say, I don't care who you quote. I'm not praying other people get the wrath of God. Okay, I'm not going to be mad at you. All right? 
Here's what I'd say. At a bare minimum, how can you apply these psalms when you come to them? You pray them against Satan. You just say, God, I'm against Satan, and I'm against demons, and I want you to send demons to hell. I want you to send Satan to hell. I want you to ruin their work on planet Earth forever. Okay? And that'll be a great way to pray these prayers. All right? Now, um, but let's go a little bit deeper, okay? How's it right? How could it be right to pray these prayers like this? Okay? And I've got several reasons. The first thing is, it's best for me. Why is it right to pray the imprecatory psalms in our life, okay, for judgment and justice and wrath even on God's enemies? The first thing is, it's best for me. And what do I mean? I get pr protection, right? If they deserve justice or punishment, only God can give that out in a right way. I mean, what does the New Testament say about vengeance? It never says vengeance is wrong. It just says it doesn't belong to us. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like he's saying, vengeance is like nuclear power. You guys aren't mature enough to handle vengeance. You'll either over-apply it or under-apply it. So you let me handle it. I don't know how many of y'all have kids, but one of the hardest things when you have kids is learning how to discipline your kids rightly. Right? When you tell your kids, no more cookies after dinner, and you get up, and you walk out, and you come back, and they're just cramming their face full of cookies. What do you do? Do you spank them? Do you use your hand? Do you use a wooden spoon? Do you spank them once? Do you spank them twice? Do you spank them really hard? Do you spank them? I mean, I'm being serious. It's hard. And we, listen, that's hard enough for a human being to say, I got four kids, and I got to figure out how to spank them. Trying to deal with justice at the human level, with, with big boy enemies, <laughs> that's a lot harder. The government is supposed to be able to do it right, right? But not, this is not about vigilante justice. And so I say, hey, God, this is above my pay grade. You handle this. You defend me. You fight for me. Vengeance belongs to you, not me. So David's saying, God, you settle my case with Saul. I will never take justice into my own hands. And you, you guys know the story. He had chances to kill Saul. A lot of his men were saying you should do it. He would never do it. It protects me from my enemy, and it protects me from my own sinfulness and wrongly trying to fight my own battles. Okay? Now, the second thing, it's best for others. And I'll give you a really practical example. I mean, this, this is the example that uh, feels very applicable to me, but it may be actually too old of an example for some of y'all. But after 9-11 happened, okay, and Osama bin Laden came out as the chief conspirator behind that, I literally, and I'm, it's just a good example, I probably prayed for Osama bin Laden once a week on average. And I'll be very honest, here, it's not like I had this deep, fervent prayer life for him. It was about a one-and-a-half-sentence prayer for him. Every, you know, once a week I'd say, Lord, I pray that you would save Osama bin Laden. I mean, imagine if that would have happened. That would have been kind of like a modern-day Saul of Tarsus getting saved. But I'd say, Lord, if you're not going to save him, I pray you'd put a cruise missile in his cave. Kill him. He's a wicked guy. He's an evil guy. I mean, what's he famous for? Killing innocent at the human level civilians. It's terrible. It's evil. He's not a good guy. So, Lord, yes, what I'd like for him is mercy and salvation. But if your plan is not to save him, I'd rather you just kill him. Okay? And you think about the most wicked person that you could imagine, maybe Hitler. That would not be a bad prayer. Okay? So it's actually you're better for other. You're praying for other humanly innocent people to be protected from these evil people. 
Now, here, here's going to be one that's hard, but it might be the most important for us to remember. It's actually best for them. It's actually best for them. Now, let's take a minute to go look. Everybody flip over to Psalm 83 for just a second. Psalm 83. Like I said, there's a lot of places in the Old Testament where David prays against his enemies, and it can seem hard for us. But here's one of the places it gets really clear how this can work in a New Testament way. Psalm chapter 83, and this is actually not David. This is another one of the psalmists praying this. But skip all the way down to the end of verse 16. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. And let them be humiliated and perish that they may know that thou alone, whose name is the Lord, art the most high over all the earth. You see what happens in that one, guys? It's like the psalmist says, yeah, I want them to get what they deserve, but part of the reason I want them to get what they deserve is they'll get broken and they'll get humble and they'll get desperate and they'll seek Jesus. Listen, I bet some of the people in this phone call, if we all went around and shared our testimony of how God brought us to Himself, some of us cause we got a little taste of justice at the human level. We got some painful consequences of some of our sin and it woke us up and we said, I better go seek Jesus because my life is miserable. And sometimes that's what it takes to get people's attention, okay? And we've got to be willing to pray like that. All right, so the fourth reason. That's the third reason to pray that way. The fourth reason, it's best for all, okay? And what I mean is it's best for all people on planet Earth. And here's maybe the best way to know this is a New Testament prayer. I think everybody would agree, okay? Here's, here's two New Testament prayers we're all aware of. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in, is in heaven. How many sinners are there in heaven? None. Think about this one. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You ever pray that one? I mean, what are you praying for? You're praying for Jesus to come back. When Jesus finally does come back, all the elect instantly get to be in heaven with Him. And what's going to happen to every person living on planet Earth that's not a Christian? They're going to hell for eternity. Whether you know it or not, when you pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, that's part of what you're praying for. Is that all of God's people would be saved. All of God's people would be in heaven with Him rejoicing. All sin, all suffering would be over forever. But part of the implication of that that we don't like to think about is that all of God's enemies will be dealt with in a just way. I know this is sobering and hard. I don't want to make light of it. I think the best way to pray is, is kind of like I said, the example of Osama bin Laden. God, what I pray is you'd have mercy on everybody. What I pray is you'd save the whole world. What I pray is you'd bring a revival and you'd reach all, every tongue, tribe, and nation and you would just do something supernatural at end times and give everybody the gift of repentance. Let everybody on planet earth be saved. But whether you're going to do that or not, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come back. Please bring an end to all the sin and suffering. And the fifth reason it's good to pray this way, guys, is it's best for God's glory. It's best for God's glory. Okay? Go back into Psalm 59 uh, and look at, I mean, yeah, Psalm 59 and look at verse 11. Okay, again. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. Okay? Um, Back to verse 13. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob. 
Guys, this is ultimately all about the glory of God. And that's got to be our major heart desire. Listen, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's what Ezekiel said. Martin Luther said, wrath is God's strange work. I mean, God doesn't like to do it. He doesn't like wrath. He likes mercy. Right? God delights in mercy. God takes pleasure in forgiveness. But here's the sobering thought. Whether somebody is damned or whether somebody is saved, God gets glory every single time. Now, our hearts ought to be, God, I want as many people to glorify you through mercy and not through wrath. I want to be an agent of mercy. And yet at the end, I want everybody to glorify you, Lord, one way or the other. Okay. The last point, back to Psalm 59. Delight me. Okay? So, you know, he starts out praying that God would wake up, hear him, deliver me, destroy them, and now he's praying, delight me, God. Delight me. And let's look at verse 16. Okay? Psalm 59, 16, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Okay. Remember back in verse nine, he was looking to be strengthened and now he's found it. He's tasting it. He's experiencing it. He can sing. Okay. Listen, so many of David's psalms, they start in a point of desperation and they end in a place of delight. But it's what happens in the middle. They start in a place of fear, okay, and they end in a place of faith. He's confident. He's joyful, okay? commentator named Mortier said, Imagine Saul's spies sneaking up to David's house and hearing him sing praises. I mean, we're about to kill this guy. He's crazy. He's in there singing praise and worship songs. He didn't know what's coming. No, no, no. They didn't know what's coming. Because his God was bigger than their God, so to speak. Okay? This is not the first time that God had protected him. He'd beaten the lion. He'd beaten the giant. He'd escaped Saul's spear. And I think I have said this in here before, but it's so helpful, guys. Preach the gospel to yourself, but also preach your personalized history to yourself. Go back and recount the times that God has fought for you. He showed up before. Okay. Now, here's what I want to do by way of application. What's the real key to praying these imprecatory psalms against our enemies and yet doing it in a Christ-centered and a grace-centered way? I want us to think about this. Okay. So, first, how's it wrong to pray this way? Okay. I can think of at least two ways that it's wrong. The first way it's wrong is this. When it's kind of like, hey, help me get vengeance for myself against my enemies, God. And it's almost like you're taking pleasure in their pain. It can't just be, they hurt me, now I want them to get hurt back. David was praying as God's man. He knew that he was God's chosen man to be on the throne. He was trying to advance God's plan, not just a self-centered agenda. Okay? And the second thing is, it can never be from a self-righteous attitude, guys. Okay, the, the motive behind why and how you pray this way is gigantic. Motives matter most. If there's even a hint of, I deserve your blessing, God, and they deserve your wrath, 
I earned your mercy, and they earned your anger. I merited your goodness, and they earned the bad side of you. You've missed it. Okay? There ought to be, if we're ever praying this way, almost this trembling kind of humility that says, I'm shocked, God. It doesn't make sense. I used to be one of your enemies. I used to deserve hell. In fact, if you took the blood of Jesus off of me right now, I'd be blown into hell right now. I still can't merit your goodness. And yet, you have made me great and mighty promises in Christ. And so, as insane as it might seem to me, in my ongoing struggle with sin, I still come in and cash in on that promise. I don't deserve your mercy and care, but you've promised it, so I'm asking for it. Look back at verse 17 again. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, oh my God, my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. And the word there for steadfast love, that's in the ESV. Some translations will translate it loving kindness. It's about God's covenant faithful love, His covenant love. Okay, That's the foundation of all of this. It's the last word in the psalm is about God's loyal love that he made a promise to bless Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and all of those who are righteous by faith and curse those that cursed them. And David is praying a lot of that promise. Okay, Now, it will be helpful as you're thinking about this psalm, as you're trying to apply it in your own life, that you're thinking, okay, Lord, who maybe do I need to pray this against? Or where maybe am I tempted to pray it in a wrong way? Okay, And part of what is really helpful to remember is there's only one human being that ever lived that could have prayed such prayers with total purity, with total righteousness, and with a total right to pray it. I mean, he, he didn't have to give any caveats when he prayed this prayer, right? I mean, when the Lord Jesus was on earth, at any point he could have said, hey, God, nuke them. And I have total righteousness, and they have total wickedness in comparison with me, Take him out. And listen, he had plenty of opportunities to pray that way. The main time, the most obvious time to pray that way would have been on the cross. We're in the midst of his greatest pain and suffering and exposure and weakness and vulnerability. They just were piling on, mocking him. And yet what did he pray? Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. They don't really get it. His heart chose mercy. Now guys, that ought to mean at least two things to us. One, I know this has been a hard, heavy, sobering lesson. I don't want to make light of that. And if any other religion was trying to teach this, I think I would utterly reject it. But part of what makes it a little bit more palatable is because it comes from the one religion in the universe that our God decided to step down and taste all the human suffering will ever suffer. And for his own people, he suffered even more because he literally suffered the hell and wrath of God for billions of sinners on the cross. He's such a humble God. He's such a gracious God. If he was willing to do that, it's hard. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's a lot harder to get mad at him that he would ordain there be prayers like this. Okay. So listen, the wrath that I justly deserve, it came down on Christ for me. So now in a sense, I can hide. He's my fortress. His side was split open for me. I can hide in him. Right? 
His death, His resurrection, that's my fortress, that's my stronghold. And there ought to be a sense that I'm so awed by Christ's love and sacrifice for us. Not that we never pray for wrath, okay? That would be to contradict everything we've said. But even when we are brought to a place where we think maybe this is the right time to pray these imprecatory psalms, we do it with such gentleness. We do it with graciousness. We do it with tears in our eyes. Let me end with this story. I heard Sinclair Ferguson tell this story a few years ago of two Scottish preachers that on Sundays after the morning service they would meet and just kind of have fellowship and maybe share a meal and talk about how the sermon went. And these two Scottish men met, and one of the pastors asked the other ones, what would you preach on today, brother? I'm not going to try to imitate the Scottish accent. And uh, he said, I preached, on, I preached on hell today. And his brother just responded to him and said, were there tears, brother? Were there tears? And that, that has always been a sobering comment for me. He wasn't asking, were there tears in the congregation? He was saying, were there tears in your eyes? while you were preaching about the wrath of God. Listen, if we're going to be faithful ministers, we've got to be willing to talk about the wrath of God. We've certainly got to be willing to pray about the wrath of God. But we should never do it in an arrogant, condescending, know-it-all, self-righteous, looking down on the other people that I don't like. It ought to be with this humble, shocked, and awe, I can't believe God even lets me participate in this conversation gentleness, hopeful heart that all would be saved. And yet a sober-minded, realistic heart that some are going to suffer. And I've got to be honest about that in the way I communicate with other human beings and even the way I communicate with the Lord in my prayer life. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so unworthy. We're, We're unworthy to know You. We're unworthy to call You our Father. We're unworthy to read your word, to understand your word, to apply your word, to be able to pray, to be able to talk to you, to be ambassadors of the message of reconciliation. God, it's a sobering task. It's an awesome task. It's a privileged task. Grow us up in faith. Help us understand you and your nature and your character more so we can pray this way, so we can live this way, so we can preach this way. Give us fruit for your glory. Have mercy on the nations. We do pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. In our lifetime, we pray that you would be reaching every tongue, tribe, and nation and using us to get the gospel there. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. 